Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is Blessings Money Cannot Buy. Let's meet Jesus. I don't know what your conception of the church is. I think a great many people have a great many different ideas as to what the church is supposed to be. And when I say the church, I'm referring to the Christian church. But this also pertains to jewelry from which Christianity sprung forth. As Jesus Christ said, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus the Christ, when he was born, it was asked concerning him, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And when he was condemned by the Jewish hierarchy, he was condemned as being king of the Jews. Now, Pontius Pilate had a title placed on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And theologians can split hairs about whether they think it said exactly that or not, whether the wording was precisely that. But King of the Jews was the title, absolutely. So much so that the Jewish hierarchy had a brouhaha about it and demanded that Pontius Pilate change it. And they stated not that he is king of the Jews, but that he claimed to be king of the Jews, which Jesus did not do, but which he was. (laughs) But what is the church? What is the church like? What is the church supposed to be? What is it about? And I'll be discussing that on many programs here on Blessings Money Cannot Buy. It's been ages since I've done this program, and I am not doing it now the way I originally did. I originally had a good deal of music that I played, which featured, of all things... Elvis Presley's hymns, Christian hymns, not his so-called gospel music, uh, nor his gospel quartet sing-alongs, but beautiful Christian hymns and other beautiful Christian contemporary music. And I will not be favoring this program with that. But many people have many ideas about what the church is. And you see a church building going back to the Middle Ages. And it typically is almost castle-like, somewhere between a castle and a skyscraper that is the most spectacular cathedrals. Extremely formal and cold and intimidating and at the same time beautiful in many respects. Some would say awe-inspiring, what have you. And yet fashioned out of stone and mortar and glass, leaden glass and so forth. And then you find, of course, humble New England church structure here in the United States of America dating back to the colonial times or some of the 
grandiose structures of now. The reason I mention that is because it has a bearing on not only what goes on inside of a church structure, but people's perception of relating to God, approaching to God. So much of the church now, of the, many of the churches, of the pastors, of the denominations, of the affiliations of churches, are swept up in the trends and fads and the things that are going round, courtesy of the denominational hierarchies, the theological seminaries, divinity schools, whatever's hot off the press. And oftentimes, ironically, it's influenced by what is currently in vogue in the major business schools. Not so much trickle-down as almost osmosis. And there are various different things, worldly things, that are being emphasized for churches. The church growth movement and church funding, funding for building projects and so forth, is very much impacted by this, and pastoral searches. And they emphasize that the preaching, it must be relational, it must be applicable, and that the pastor must be a vision caster. Uh, takes me back to George Herbert Walker Bush and the vision thing, or vision quests, and all this mucky-muck nonsense that has pervaded the church, and which is rank foolishness, and yet is terribly highbrow, terribly enlightened and progressive, and it's necessary in order to reach the educated people out there, the educated non-believers, the educated seekers, so-called, and who are too intelligent to be reached with just the mere primitive Bible and gospel. And it's not only focused that way on the intelligentsia, but, and on those who imagine that they are, but also then on on reaching young families. Let's bring young blood into the church, into this particular church or that particular church, not referring now to a corporate church, but just, but the individual churches, to reach the young families, and so forth. We need to make it more entertaining. We need to have multi-purpose buildings, and we need to have all kinds of special programs. This has been going on for decades and decades. And every program that they have, they put the name, the title, ministry on it. (laughs) Everything is a ministry. And the requirements for pastor are fascinating. In addition to it being necessary for the pastor also often to have advanced degrees, it is required that he be a married man, have a family, That's fine, but it is interesting to reference the scriptures written by men who were not married and who did not have families (laughs) and who were in the superior position, not a mere pastor, and to 
to reference those scriptures as proof positive that this is what's necessary to be a pastor for this church or that church or the other church. Even as, of course, the Roman Catholics have it an absolute requirement that the the priests not be married, not have a family, which they, this corruption, this perversion that they brought into the institutional Roman Catholic organization long ago, and all those who did not accept it, who would not put their wives away, were run out of the church. So all the best priests in the Roman Catholic Church were driven out. But I digress. So what is the church supposed to be? Whom should we ask? Whom should we seek counsel from regarding what the church is supposed to be like? Well, by all means, let's not look to the Bible. Let's not look to the Bible and to God the Son (laughs) and to the early church. We can't do that because if we do that, it completely pulls the rug out from under all of these modernistic trends that have been in the works now for the last many decades and which just keep on snowballing. You might think of Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as a blue-collar king of the Jews, a working man's king of the Jews, (laughs) and that his church that he built, that he fashioned, was along those lines also, a reflection of him. Blue-collar is really not the right term, but, of course, it has to do with occupational differences. Those who work with their hands, with their bodies, laborers, skilled laborers, craftsmen, union workers, All of these, farmers, ranchers, mechanics, and what have you, builders, that they would wear denim shirts or blue collars or what have you, whereas, or uniforms, whereas executives, managers, academicians, politicians, lawyers, accountants, doctors, what have you, would wear white dress shirts. <laughs> and so uh, we have this division, blue collar, white collar. But, of course, in this day and age, then we have the, the dot-comers who uh, famously there with Steve Jobs and company would wear colored T-shirts and jeans and, and maybe a blazer <laughs> for formal occasions to go with it. But So that did change. But you'd have maybe Michelangelo chiseling away in marble, and he's a blue-collar worker, and then you have some royalty who is well below mediocrity, but who is in resplendent robes. Clothes do not make the man. But the church, as it was created, as it was fashioned, was a very rough and ready, hardy creation. John Baptist, who 
was the forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent by God as his messenger to make ready the way, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. is a man that has been vilified and scandalized in many churches by many pastors. I know because I have heard such things firsthand, and this has been in mainstream churches, charismatic churches and evangelical churches and Pentecostal churches and what have you, and which is really remarkable given what an exceedingly high view of the servant of God, Jesus Christ, had. But in the gospel according to Matthew and what is referenced as chapter 3, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Isaiah is Isaiah in the Old Testament, and he foretold the coming of John Baptist. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. John Baptist, ironically, was resorted to by some who were in Jewish hierarchy. Some recognized the hand of God upon John the Baptist. And went out to him and were baptized by him. Jesus speaking of John the Baptist later said the following. What went ye out into the wilderness... To see, this is in what's referenced as chapter 11, also of the gospel according to Matthew. The apostle, also known as Saint Matthew. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When Jesus said this, it should be taken in light of what he said immediately preceding it, in which he said, But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Now, we see elsewhere that this same description by Jesus is given, and 
the wording is ever so slightly different. And so I can understand that some would take issue (laughs) with my conclusion. However, in that scripture, when the Lord says, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. It's worded, hath not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. However, I believe that this wording is correct. That prophet was not there. That it was included in the other because it was understood to be there. But don't want to split hairs here. But Jesus refers to John Baptist as not only a prophet, an exceedingly great prophet, in the other scripture, the greatest prophet. There hath not risen a greater prophet than him. So you could say, well, that doesn't mean he's the greatest, just as great as the greatest, and the greatest would be Jesus. But here he says, more than a prophet. More than a prophet. And he says, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Which is remarkable wording, considering Jesus was born of woman. He was not born of man. He was begotten by the Holy Spirit of God, but he was born of woman, conceived in a very young virgin woman who, after she gave birth to Jesus, consummated her marriage with her her husband, Joseph, and bore, conceived and bore four sons to him and a number of daughters. But John Baptist, at the very, very least, according to Jesus, was as great as the greatest prophet there had ever been. And yet, less than the least in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, that was only true so long as John Baptist was alive because once he had been martyred, had been murdered, executed, beheaded, and inherited the kingdom of God, then he is no longer less than the least in the kingdom of heaven, to put it mildly. And Jesus said also concerning John Baptist, until now the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence from the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. Various pastors and teachers and what have you have taken this scripture and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force to mean that we Christians, we violently take the kingdom of heaven by force. We force ourselves upon God and his kingdom. We force our ways into 
the kingdom of heaven, which is complete, utter. It's not nonsense. It's heresy. But it's popular. (laughs) But so what is the church supposed to be? What is it like? Well, John Baptist was a man who ate honey, wild honey, and locusts and wore leather and camel's hair garments and lived in the wilderness until his brief life, his brief, exceedingly bright life was ended. The Lord Jesus Christ considered him to be the greatest. A man like that. What about all the chief rulers in the temple and in the synagogues? What about the high priest and the former high priest? What about the doctors of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? What about all of them? All of those great men. Well, there were none of them that were great men, (laughs) first of all. There were some of them that were not bad men. But none of them that were great men. None of them that stood up against the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But John Baptist, a man who's ridiculed by various pastors and teachers and theologians, Christ Jesus said was the greatest. John Baptist, a most interesting Man, Jesus said of him, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. And elsewhere, speaking of him, he also referred to him as Elijah, and that what had been written concerning him had been done. Elijah in the Old Testament was taken up by God into heaven without having died. A very great, very courageous, most outstanding, uncorruptible prophet of God. And yet, I have heard him referred to in churches in the most derogatory fashion as being crazy, being a coward, this, that, and the other. It's amazing the kinds of things that you can hear in churches, not in cults, but in churches in this nation, United States of America, in cliquish, cultish controlling, carnal churches. There are such things. (laughs) It's funny, I had an upbringing which is different, I imagine, than many, and which predisposed me to view things differently. From many. And that is, I came to faith in Christ by reading the Bible, by reading the King James Bible on my own, without being tutored, without being taught, without being coached, reading the Bible and rereading the Bible and rereading the Bible. Now, that did not do wonders for me in terms of socialization and getting to meet some beautiful, darling, young 
Christian woman and getting to have a more normal life. (laughs) Nor did it do wonders for me in terms of being favored by the church, some expression of the church, and taken under the wing of some and mentored and promoted and advanced and all of that. No, just the opposite. But by the time I finally started visiting churches, I was mystified by what I heard because I heard so many things that I had never read of in the Bible. So in that sense, you could say I was ignorant. Ignorant, unschooled, you know, just ignorant. Ignorant of all of the dispensations and uh, ignorant of the once saved, always saved and various other extremely important things and ignorant of the ways of televangelists and of their proclaiming, thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed, referring to themselves and give until it hurts and all of the other hoopla and corruption that was prevalent and the merchandising of the gospel and the prostituting of the gospel and the exploiting of people in the church frequently in many churches, many pastorates preying upon women, children, and what have you. I was ignorant of it, woefully ignorant of it. And I found that, again, so much of the boilerplate in the church, even of just good old mainline Baptist churches or whatever other kind of persuasion of churches, so much of what was in the church, not just the apostate churches and the heretical profane churches and where they celebrate sodomites and they give themselves kudos for having a male or female sodomite on staff and so forth, forgetting all of those places, but just mainstream, quasi-conservative, fundamental churches that so much of what they had and have and were proud of didn't go back to the Bible, didn't go back to the Word of God, but instead went back 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago. This is the problem with conservatism, the religious conservatism. It doesn't pertain to conserving the truth of God's Word. Instead, it pertains to conserving man's traditions and doctrines. But speaking of the church on the extreme left, using left and right, just like in politics here, so the spectrum is from the middle out, but on the extreme left... You have these absolutely, utterly, totally heretical, apostate, sham churches which promote the sodomite agenda, induced abortion, everything evil. And they insist that the word of God is completely unreliable. Then somewhere in the mushy middle, we have these churches that many of them also, (laughs) for decades now, have been embracing the abortionist agenda. 
or at least not standing against it as a matter of conscience or anything like that. And that in many, many, many cases, and this is not only in a denomination and the denominational hierarchy, but in theological seminaries and divinity schools and Christian colleges of the same persuasion as this denomination or that denomination, that they insist that the King James Bible, also known as the authorized version, that it's unreliable due to translation, revision, that it missed the mark, and instead they insist on using, studying, preaching from, teaching from, Bibles which are supposedly more accurate, but which are in fact less accurate. Because while the King James Version, an authorized version, may be imperfect, that's right, imperfect, 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 errant in some way, shape, or form, I know, If you are in solidly in the conservative camp of inerrancy, infallibility of Scripture, hold your hats, please. Give me a minute or two to explain. All right. But they insist King James Version, authorized version, fatally flawed. And so they have their versions which unlike the King James Version, authorized version, which was revised, translated by good and godly men who were filled with the Spirit. Instead of that, They prefer translations translated by men who make the resurrection of Christ to be a conjuring of bones. Men who are Darwinian evolutionists. Men who are at war with God and with his Christ. And they prefer those translations. Suffice to say, those translations are ever so much less reliable than the King James Version, authorized version. The King James Version, authorized version, it's translated out of, in the case of the Old Testament, the original tongues. In the case of the New Testament, the original Greek. And with the former translations diligently compared and revised by King James' special command. But this is not to say that the King James Version, authorized version, is flawless. Unfortunately, so many on the right, (laughs) the further out to the right you go, the more this tends to be the case. In reaction to what's going on on the left and in the mushy middle and so forth, or the quicksand middle, you have these churches that insist that the Bible as it stands in the King James Version, authorized version, or whatever version they are using, that it is infallible and inerrant. The problem with that is that there are numerous instances of it being less than 100% free from error. Does that mean 
all of the kingdom of God crashes down? Does that mean faith in God goes away? It shouldn't. But if you build the expectation into people, if you build the belief and conviction into people that the Holy Bible as it stands, King James Version, Authorized Version, or whatever version, is absolutely, totally free from error. Once those people realize that here's an imperfection and there's an imperfection and here's another one and there's another one, you have a problem on your hands. You have created a problem by this ridiculous insistence that the Bible as it's been handed down, as it has been preserved, despite being under horrible attack, the Muslims have done everything they could to annihilate Christians and Jews and to abolish the Bible, to destroy the Bible. So that now we have experts insisting that Less than the oldest Bibles are the oldest. <laughs> it causes a problem. When you react to that defensively and insist that the Bible as we have it today is without imperfection. God is without imperfection. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost are without imperfection. They are infallible. They are inerrant. They are unfailing. And the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. And Jesus Christ is spoken of by John the Apostle. St. John, and I have this problem with him being referred to as St. John because John the Baptist would be St. John also. And so many others. But he is the Apostle John, the brother of the Apostle James, whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges to, or the sons of thunder. But John referred to Jesus as the Word. That Word is infallible, that Word is inerrant. God the Son is that word. But this Bible we have, as precious as it is, is not. In the Gospel, according to, again, it lists it as being St. John. Prefer for that to be known as Apostle John or just John. Because what the Roman Catholic institution has done with saints and sainthood has made a terrible, terrible mess, just like everything they have touched. Beginning with the first words in what is listed as chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The 
Let me give you a small example, and you will think I'm quibbling and what have you, but also in what is listed as the first chapter, referenced as the 17th verse. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No problem with that, right? Except the law was given by God Almighty to Moses, not from Moses, not by Moses. The law and the Psalms and the prophets all testify of Jesus Christ. I respect the Apostle John as much as any mere man in the Bible. But but the church, what is it? Really? Let's just go back to the beginning in the gospel according to Matthew. In what's listed as the fourth chapter, it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. These men, three of these men, Simon called Peter, also called Cephas, a stone. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, whom Jesus also names Boanerges. These three men become the inner circle. Of the apostles, the twelve apostles, these three are the closest. They get to see the most, the very most. And these three men were all fishermen. Now you could say, wait a minute, they're not blue-collar workers. These are small businessmen. I hate that term. Don't you small businessmen? I envision four-foot-tall businessmen. Small businessmen like... uh, Oh, who is that fellow? Robert. Uh, I can't think of his last name. Very small fellow uh, who was in the Clinton administration. But small businessmen. Yes, you could say they're small businessmen, but they are blue collar. These are rough, tough, physical laborers. These fishermen. James and John, who work for their father, their father Zebedee, Simon Peter and Andrew, all fishermen. And you look at the other apostles, and I'm sure you've heard it many times about what their professions are, what their livelihoods are. And you will find that among the rest of the apostles, you have similar backgrounds, trades, crafts. Yes, okay, Matthew, publican, tax collector, uh, right? Uh, The hated uh, or viewed as extremely far below everybody else along with women of ill repute, but 
these men were all fishermen, all laborers. Why, why, why would Jesus select men like these to build his church? Why? Now, Jesus, though he was begotten by the Holy Spirit, was raised by the husband of Mary, the former virgin, the husband of Mary, the father of her children that were conceived and born after Jesus was born. Contrary to what the Roman Catholic institution dishonestly insists. Intellectual honesty does not have a place in Roman Catholicism. It really doesn't. If you read the Word of God on your own, people, and you have a heart for truth, the only way you can reach the conclusions of the doctrines and dogma of Roman Catholicism are if you have been brainwashed for so long by it. Because the Word of God militates against the lies of Roman Catholicism doctrine. But Jesus was raised as a carpenter. But Jesus showed who he really was. When he stayed behind in Jerusalem, when he questioned with the doctors of the law, when he asked them questions, when he had understanding beyond theirs when he was 12 years old, even though he had never been tutored, never been trained, never been educated to understand such things. But why would he choose rough-hewn laborers to build his church? Yes, there are those, and virtually everybody, I suppose, uh, that has any position in the Christian church in America that will say, wait a minute, the apostles, they went to seminary, they went to divinity school, they had three and a half years with Jesus, and on they go <laughs> with such. Yes, they did. But what did that training consist of? Did that include psychology, sociology, anthropology, Darwinian evolution, counseling, so-called? Did it? Multiple languages and what have you? What did that training have in common with formalized pastoral training in the United States of America, which we're so proud of that we export it to the rest of the world, so that when the church is born in places like communist China, communist Vietnam, communist North Korea, Muslim Iran, in Iraq. When I say born, you might say, wait a minute, the church was there long ago, back before communism. Yes, you're right, and back before Muslim regimes existed, back before Islam. It's true. The apostles belatedly, very, very stubbornly, belatedly, got on the move and did go out. Many of them did go out from Jerusalem, and the church did go out into the world. But when the church came to these places and took root 
and grew in the face of terrible persecution, bloody persecution. It was attacked by the native heathen pagan peoples and their false religions and their idolatry and their devil worship. And then along came communism and along came Islam, hell-bent on their so-called holy war, which is the exact opposite of holy, anti-holy, bent on annihilation of all Christians and Jews and obliteration of Christianity and Jewry and the Word of God, the Bible. So that in so many places, whether in Asia or in Africa or in the Middle East, and so forth. So many places it has had to be born again, planted again. And in so many instances of this, then the sophisticated church back home in the United States of America, in the UK and elsewhere, they say, oh my, there's something going on out there. But they're poor, ignorant people. They don't know their way. We need to help them. We need to teach them. We need to instruct them. And so the Western church gets involved and hinders the work of God by bringing in unfaith and unbelief doctrines and dogmas of man contrary to the word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ could have chosen doctors of the law, scribes, Pharisees. He did not. Of course, many will say, wait a minute, what about Paul, formerly Saul? What about him? And what about him? Jesus chose rough-hewn, laboring men and a hated tax collector, among others. He also chose Judas Iscariot, and that was not an accident God knew what he was doing. But these men, all they brought to the table, as is wont to be said here in American business circles and so forth, was a very unenlightened Jewish belief system. They were not intellectuals. They were not scholars. They had not been trained to be scholars. And they were woefully far behind in ever achieving scholarship. You know, in this day and age, if you're not trained as a very, very, very young child in this sport or that sport, you have virtually no chance to ever, regardless of your talents, to ever succeed athletically, to ever achieve, to ever make it to the Olympics other than representing a country that has no Olympic team and, <laughs> and so forth, different standards. But so too with this. They had not been trained scholastically, academically. They had not been mentored. Paul was brought up at Gamaliel's knee. Very different story. But these men were not. Why would God choose them? Because there were many reasons, but one was this. Their knowledge and wisdom would depend utterly on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, Jesus Christ, and faith in God. God is not a respecter of persons. That's not true in Christendom here in the United States of America and elsewhere in the Western world. 
the leaders of the church, more often than not, are exceedingly respecters of men. God is no respecter of men. And instructs us not to be. These men were babes, if you will. Yes, they were experienced fishermen and so forth. But they were babes when it came to things spiritual. And they were amazingly blind and ignorant concerning so many things, so insensitive. Just incredibly so. And not just before their three-year or three-and-a-half-year training stint with Jesus. But right up to the end, right up to his crucifixion, they were still bullheaded, blind, ignorant men until they were baptized with the Spirit of God. And then God Almighty brought their training back to them, caused them to understand, opened the Scriptures to them, and taught them. But they were not able to learn, really learn, until they were baptized with the Spirit by the Holy Ghost ten days after the ascension of Christ into heaven. And at that time, the church grew by 3,000. They baptized all of the new believers. 3,000. My word. We better go rent a YWCA or YMCA swimming pool here. Or the nearest pond or lake or something. It's going to be an all-day event to baptize these people. The church grew. The church grew because of the Spirit of God, not because of some consultants, some high-priced consultants coming in and bringing forth the great plan for church growth and for funding a new building and for this, that, and the other thing. And, oh, let's come up with this program and that program and the other program and this one, and we will call them all ministries. The tape ministry, which would now be the Oh my gosh, what would it be? The podcast ministry, and this ministry, and that ministry, and every other ministry. Everything's a ministry. Or a service. Whether it happens to be recreation, or sports, or whatever. Substance abuse, recovery this, recovery that. It's man's carnal foolish, blind, ignorant, powerless church. It's not what Jesus created. It's not what Jesus built. Imperfection foolishness, sinfulness, errancy, failure is in all of us. The apostles, when they were baptized with the Spirit, did not become perfect men, devoid of imperfection. Positively not. Don't know what your views are concerning Paul, but Paul wrote some humdingers in the Word of God. I know, I know, it was all the Spirit writing through him, and yet, was it? There are times when he says, not the Spirit, but I. (laughs) 
He doesn't say that enough times, frankly. But our faith stands on the Lord Jesus Christ and his infallibility and his inerrancy, his truth, his justice. The resurrection of the dead, I refer to as the resurrection of life, as in the resurrection of life body, which you can find other podcasts under that. But the Lord God also refers to the resurrection of the just. Throughout the churches, there are so many things that are taught that are wrong. That those of us who will inherit the kingdom of God, we will not come before the judgment seat of Christ. No, no, we won't see that. And yet God's word says we will. (laughs) Not that we will be condemned or punished, but that we will be judged. We will come before the judgment seat of God. And yet, I have heard that many times. When in doubt, go with the word of God. Go with the Holy Bible. I recommend the King James Version, authorized version for English Bible, but not because it is perfect, but because it's God and it's Christ are. I'm Brad Thomas. And this is Blessings Money Cannot Buy. Thank you.